what you're doing on this campus. We thank you for the spirit of revival. We just thank you for your spirit coming down and then just letting us worship you here. And Father God, we pray for the word that you've placed on Dr. Rao's heart and let it be received with open minds, with open hearts. And Lord, just I pray that you'll just help us to place all distractions behind us, all our, our work, families, school, whatever is going on, Lord, just help us to, to put that all aside just for the next for the next half hour or so so that we can just focus in on the word that you've that you have for us. Um, and just let us not only hear it, but let us just pray on it, think about it, and apply it to our daily lives, Lord, so that we can become become better people and better Christians through your will and your love and your grace. In your precious name we pray. Amen. again for the very kind invitation to join you uh, during this week here at ENC. Uh, As was mentioned earlier, I actually lived, uh, my family and I, we lived here in the Boston area for over 15 years and had the chance to visit ENC on a number of different occasions as well as uh, pastoring a church in the Cambridge area uh, and working with college students at uh, MIT. Uh, So coming back here is like a homecoming. I've been now in Chicago for the last four years. Uh, but uh, the opportunity to join you here during this week is a, is a real gift uh, for me and the chance to share with you some of the things that God has laid upon my heart. I said last night, and something I think that's wor- uh, uh, worth repeating, the idea that when we grow, the part of the ways that we grow is not just by being in a safe place, although that is good and important, but also at times being in uncomfortable places. That if we're only in safe places, then we don't have any need to grow. Why should we grow? We're in a safe and comfortable environment. Uh, but then when we're in places that are sometimes disruptive, sometimes causes discomfort, uh, those two things combine. That it is a safe place where you feel you are with friends and you are with those that love and care for you, but at the same time at a place where your understanding of the world is challenged and your presumptions and assumptions about the way the world works are challenged. Those are the two places that I think we want to enter into during this week. Places of safety, where we know that we are in the presence of God and we feel the safety and acceptance of that, but also places of discomfort, where we know that we are being challenged by God's Word and by the truth of what is going on around us. Uh, today I want to talk um, out of the, the uh, book of First Peter, chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, please turn to that passage. I'm going to have some slides up here that will give you some images and pictures and ideas and words that will help us to process What's going on in 1 Peter chapter 2? I want us to focus on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and following. But we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit and try to get, first of all, a good understanding of the context of the story in 1 Peter chapter 2. But let me read for you um, verse 9 and following uh, of chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Lord, I pray that as we look into Your Word, You might teach us Your heart for us and for your people and for this world. We pray this in your name. 
Amen. Uh, before we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, I want us to first get an understanding about what was going on in the historical context. When we examine scriptures, it's a good idea to understand what was happening in the context that this letter, uh, written by the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle Peter, is, is, uh, is happening in the time period around it. So if we think about the historical context, the first thing we have to realize is that this letter is being written around the time that Nero is, has launched a series of persecutions against the church. Uh, some of you might know, go to the image of the next slide here. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, some of you know of the old uh, story that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. How many of you heard that phrase? It's a phrase talking about Nero's seeming um, lack of concern that the city of Rome was burning. What had actually happened was uh, Nero was, was one of these brilliant human beings. But not only was he brilliant, he was also probably com just completely insane. And one of the things about Nero was that he saw this city, he saw the city of Rome, and he had a vision for this city. And he didn't like what the city of Rome looked like, he wanted to renovate it, he wanted to do urban redevelopment. So one of the things that he did was something that actually happens in many, many cities. And that is he decided to burn up or destroy portions of the city in order that he could rebuild there. Now if you know anything about the history of Boston, this actually happened in the city of Boston. There were places in, uh, in the south side of Boston, uh, in Dorchester, Mattapan, and Roxbury, that were just burnt out and empty buildings. And what had happened was the landlords had burned these buildings away in order to claim the insurance money, in order to kind of make a profit off of the poverty and the oppression of those in, this, uh, in, in, in the city of Boston. And this uh, is a common knowledge that in the city of Boston, landlords were burning up their property in order to collect the insurance money. Very similar to this is what Nero was doing with his own city. He decided he had a vision for his city. He wanted to see it redeveloped. So he went in there and he started burning up big tracts of land in the city of Rome. And his plan was, once he burned those places out, he could level those property and, you know, kick out the residents because they had been burned out of their homes, and he would build a target there. Well, maybe not a target, but something to that effect. He would rebuild those, na those cities, those parts of the cities that had been the slums, that had been the ghettos, and rebuild it with things that maybe gave glory to him. And he would build a, uh, a, a monument to himself by rebuilding that city. Now, that was kind of the insanity as well as the genius of, of Nero. He was going to burn out this city and rebuild it for himself. What happened, though, is that uh, people discovered, wait a minute, these fires seemed very suspicious. They called in CSI Rome and they came in with their little gadgets and they did the soil testing and all of that. So wait a minute, this was not a natural fire. This was not Mrs. O'Leary kicking over a lantern or anything of that sort. This is a very suspicious fire. So rumors began to, to abound about, wait, what happened here? Something happened here and this is not a regular typical fire and rumors began to spread that maybe Nero himself set these fires. Now Nero, being a very intelligent man, said, there's got to be a way that I get out of this. I don't want attention on me because then I can't rebuild the city though I want it to be rebuilt. So he said, I have got to find a group of people that I can blame this fire on. And I've got to look for people that I can say, well, I'm not the one that set the fire. It was this strange group of people that are aliens in our midst. And that's the group that he wanted to blame the fire on. And he found just such a group. And this group was really, truly, truly bizarre. They were accused of being cannibals because they would eat the flesh and drink the blood of their founding member. How absolutely bizarre. They were accused of sexual immorality because they would have something called love feasts. They were accused of incest because they would call each other brother and sister and then they would end up marrying each other. And worst of all, they were accused of being communists 
Because they would hold all their possessions in common and share with the very least among them and share and give to the poor. So clearly this was an evil group. What group am I talking about? The Christians. It was the Christians. The Christians were scapegoated because they were out of the box. They were strange. They were peculiar. They were behaving in a way that didn't quite fit with Roman society and with Roman culture. And so Nero said, we're going to launch a series of persecutions against the Christians. These are truly bizarre people. And in fact, Nero, being the genius as well as the insane person, decided he was going to launch a horrible series of persecutions. And he was brutal in the ways that he persecuted the Christians in Rome. Some of the things that he would do is he would tie up Christians to the back of his chariots and then kind of run through the town and then they would be completely uh, destroyed by, by, uh, by being dragged behind chariots. He would dip the Christians into tar and then put them in his garden and use them as torches in his garden. He would wrap Christians up in animal skins, throw them into the water, and then the, uh, they would both drown and suffocate and the, the skins would constrict and kill them. He would wrap uh, Christians in, in, in animal meat and then throw them out into the wilds so that they would be eaten by wild animals. So the brutality of Nero actually knew very little limitation. And some of the worst persecutions were enacted under the Emperor Nero in, in its full cruelty. Now here's something interesting though about the persecutions themselves. Some historians have looked at the persecution that Rome uh, enacted under Nero and said numerically, and even in its uh, severity, not so much in its severity, but in its, in, its, uh, in its impact, most of the persecution was isolated in the city of Rome itself. And numerically, it was actually relatively smaller than some of the other persecutions that would occur in subsequent years. So Nero's persecution was very severe, and many people were brutalized by it. But in terms of numbers, it was actually a relatively small number. And also in terms of the isolation, it was actually isolated mostly in Rome. But Nero's effect was very powerful because people heard about these persecutions. Now, if you have a distant cousin who was slaughtered by wild animals, then you hear that story. Or if you have a distant cousin that was used as a garden torch, then that story begins to spread. So even though the persecution was mostly, or if not only isolated in Rome, people in Corinth, people in Ephesus, People in Thessalonica all heard about these persecutions. And the Christians all throughout the Roman Empire, all throughout the ancient Near East, were saying, this is terrible. This could happen to us. Think about those Roman Christians. And maybe they had friends who were actually uh, killed during that persecution. And so there's this rampant fear that began to spread throughout the Roman Empire among the Christians. Now what that led to was that many of these Christians began to withdraw from society. They began to say, we want to have nothing to do with the Roman society. We want to have nothing to do with Roman culture. We want to isolate ourselves as much as possible and disconnect with what's going on in the world around us. In some sense, can you really blame them? They were fearful. Now granted, most of the persecution was Rome, and they were off in another part of the country, another part of the empire, but still there was this rampant fear that this could happen to us. And the best way to avoid it was to actually disassociate ourselves from the culture around us. They hid themselves and dis, uh, disengage from the world, uh, from what was going on in the world. Now, what's interesting is that there are two theories. Let's go advance to the next slide. There are a couple of different theories why Christians were persecuted during this time by Nero. The first is, uh, is kind of the one that says Nero is, is, is insane. And so he had an unreasonable hatred towards Christians. He was just a crazy guy who decided to pick a random group and said, you know what, let's just, let's just wipe these people out. So these are evil people with evil intention, with the intention to treat Christians in this horrible, horrible way. But there's actually a second theory that kind of goes along this theory, and that not only were they evil, evil people, 
but the Nero was able to isolate uh, or find a group that had isolated themselves in such a way that if Nero picked on them, they would not be able to fight back because they were not engaged enough in the culture and society that they could have any kind of social standing. So Nero picked a group, the Christians, who were alienated, isolated, and not involved in the life of Rome or the Roman uh, uh, culture so that they became an easy target for Nero's persecution. Both of these theories actually have a lot of merit and they're actually not contradictory to each other. They actually have some kind of overlap. Now, I raise this because I want to talk about Christianity in the historical context of the 20th century. What happened in the 20th century and how what happened to American Christians in the 20th century is very similar to what we saw in first century church uh, under the Emperor Nero and, and this is the context into which Peter is writing this letter. In the early part of the 20th century, there is something that historians now call the Great Reversal. The story goes like this, that in the 19th century, almost all Christians were actively involved in society. All Christians saw some way that they could engage in the world around them. It's a great book written by a Nazarene history professor. Uh, and he t uh, taught at Johns Hopkins. His name escapes me. Um, my apologies. Smith? Timothy Smith? All right, I knew somebody here would know. Uh, he wrote a book that talks about how every major social reform movement in the 19th century had kind of Christian roots to them. The abolitionist movement, spearheaded by Christians. The women's right to vote started in church basements. Uh, the, the abolition of child labor uh, started among the churches. These are, are major social reform movements in the 19th century that began among the Christians. And so in the 19th century, Christians were actively engaged in the world in transforming the world around them. They were not isolated from the world. But there were a couple of things that happened in the 20th century. A, a, a couple of threads, and I'm going to simplify this. In, 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 uh, I'm going to simplify this, but essentially there was a greater conflict that arose between the world and the church. And one of those things was the Scopes trial uh, in the 1920s. The Scopes trial was when a Tennessee professor was put on trial for teaching evolution. And he was, this was illegal. This was against the law in Tennessee. So he was put on trial for teaching evolution. And they, this became the trial of the century, more than the Simpson trial or any of these other trials. This was really the trial of the century. So here you had this person on trial and they had two uh, opposing uh, counsel. The uh, prosecutor uh, was someone by the name of William Jennings Bryant. And he was a fundamentalist. He was a conservative Christian. The defendant for Scopes was a guy named Clarence Darrow, and he was a secular humanist. What happened in the course of this trial is that William Jennings Bryant became portrayed and seen as an, an ignorant-sounding person, a person who didn't know very basic things about science, who didn't know very basic things about the world. And so Christians in the media became portrayed as this backwater, ignorant, stupid people. And so what happens is, uh, Scopes actually loses the trial. He is convicted of uh, teaching evolution. He's fined like 25 cents or something to that effect. But what happens is that the, it's what we call a Pyrrhic victory. You might have won that one battle, but ultimately, in the scope of things, pun intended, in the scope of things, Christianity was disgraced in the public arena. Christians were seen as ignorant. Christians were seen as stupid. And so what happens is that many of the Christians, in light of this kind of thing emerging, in light of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, decides to withdraw from the world and stop the engagement with the world at large. 
In contrast to what we saw in the 19th century, in the 20th century we see Christians disengaged from the world around them. And this is when we see the creation of a Christian subculture. And some of the, maybe the most uh, horrible examples of this are things like Christian t-shirts or Christian music, oftentimes very derivative of secular music. But you're not supposed to listen to secular music. You're not supposed to like secular art. You're not supposed to wear secular t-shirts. So what you do is you create a Christian version of it because you're trying to isolate yourself from the world around you. So one of the things that happens is, uh, I remember when I was in, in high school, uh, my, a lot of my friends in high school, my secular friends had a t-shirt uh, about Heineken, the, the beer Heineken, or the beer Budweiser. And obviously Christians can't wear those kinds of t-shirts that says Budweiser, king of beers. And so what a good Christian entrepreneur did is, we can't have good Christian kids wear Budweiser, king of beers, so we're going to make a Christian version of that. So they use the exact same font, the exact same graphics, but change the word Budweiser to Jesus and King of Beers to King of the Jews. So here you have this non-Christian kid, Budweiser, King of Beers. Right next to him is this Christian kid, exact same picture, except now it says Jesus, King of the Jews. So that became the mimicry that most Christians engaged the culture. We did stupid things when it came to engaging the culture. So what we see in the 20th century is a dysfunctional relationship between the church and the culture. We don't know how to engage the culture in a healthy, powerful, positive way. We only know how to either run away from it and go and create our own subculture or engage in it, engage in, it in a dysfunctional way that we just end up mimicking it. So the truth is, and, I, and I'm going to be very blunt about this, most of Christian music tends to be derivative. It just copies secular music and you just paste Christian words onto secular music. And we say, now it's holy because we've sanctified it with the word Jesus ten times instead of the word love ten times. So that becomes the, the formula to which we engage the culture. Either in a way that says, we hate the world, we're going to have nothing to do with it, or we're going to engage the world in such a way that we copy the world and mimic the world. Let me give you this example in architecture, because I think architecture actually gives us a little bit of insight in how the church disengages the culture in a dysfunctional way. Let's go to the next slide here. Uh, how many of you have seen churches that look like the following? Uh, this building doesn't look like that, but there are a lot of churches, um, particularly in the, in the Midwest, not so much in the East Coast, that have these kind of sloped ceiling, arch ceilings, and they're a little bit off to the side like that. You can see it, right? It's, uh, it's got the slanted ceiling and then a little bit of an arch. Now, this is very common of architecture of churches that were built in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. So, in New England, the churches are a little bit older. You might not see this as much, but if your church was built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, this is a very common form of architecture. I now live in Chicago, and I visit churches in the Chicago area. Many of those churches were built in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Almost all the architecture looks like that. Now, I saw this architecture, and I said, what is the, what's the point of that kind of architecture? For one thing, it's extraordinarily inefficient. Uh, if you have architecture like that, where does all the heat go on a cold day? It goes right up to the ceiling, right? So now you've got all the heat up in the ceiling and you've got cold people down on the floor, can't do anything. So that kind of architecture is really inefficient. So that's when you have to install ceiling fans. And, and now you've got all this stuff and it looks ridiculous because it doesn't, seem to, uh, it doesn't seem to match with what you're trying to do. Unless you realize that this is intentional symbolism by the churches who were disengaging with the culture around them. Let's go to the next slide. Because if you were to take that sanctuary and turn it upside down, what does it look like? What are you looking at when you look at that sanctuary upside down? It's the bottom of a boat. 
It's the bottom of a boat. You can kind of see there, it looks like the hull of a boat. Now, if you turn it right side up, we can go to the next slide. It looks like the sanctuary ceiling. But you turn it upside down. Let's go one more time. It looks like the bottom of a boat. Now, if you're saying that your church is a boat, where in the Bible do you see the boat? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Now think for a moment with me when your church says to the world, we are Noah's Ark. What are you saying to the world theologically, sociologically, symbolically? You're saying, we are Noah's Ark. We are safe in the confines of the church. We've got one of each or two of each kind of animal. We've got our safe uh, place here. And in fact, the world deserves to be destroyed. It deserves to be judged and wiped out by a flood. But as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark, then we're okay. So this perception of the Noah's Ark approach to architecture means that you have disengaged from the world in such a way that now you are irrelevant to the world around you. Now think about this. When you're saying, this is Noah's Ark, we're here safe in, the, in, in church, but the rest of the world is going to be judged and destroyed, how do you do evangelism from Noah's Ark? You throw out a lifeline to one person, maybe and bring them into the church, bring them into Noah's Ark. But you don't care what happens to the world. In fact, you want the world to be destroyed because that's part of the purpose of Noah's Ark, to preserve the saints, but to have the rest of the world be destroyed. And that became the mentality of most 20th century Christianity. Let the world be destroyed. Evangelism, will do it one person at a time. We'll throw out a lifeline to a family member or a friend, but ultimately we don't care about what happens to the world. Let the world be destroyed as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark. So that's what I would call a marginalized Christianity. A Christianity marginalized from the world in such a way that it leads to a great degree of irrelevance to the world. Now, interestingly happens towards the end of the 20th century. And architecture takes another shift. And it shifts this time from an arc architecture to something else. Uh, let's go to the next slide you start seeing most sanctuaries start looking like this. How many of you have seen sanctuaries that look like this? Now what do you see? Now you see churches that are entertainment venues. So now instead of a marginalized Christianity, you have an over-mainstreamed Christianity. So this is the common architecture in the 1980s, 1990s, and in the last decade or so. And this type of architecture is now saying, we love the world now. We want to be like the world. We want to look like the world. So churches start looking like movie theaters. Churches start looking like malls. Some of the best megachurches in the United States, I've been to a number of them, they look like malls and movie theaters. I was at a megachurch down in the Virginia area. I was uh, given a tour. This guy was so proud of his church. I was walking down the hallway of this, of this, uh, of this uh, mall church, church, and I was walking down the, the, the halls of this church, and off to the side there's a little information kiosk, and then there's a little coffee shop, and then there's a little store where they sell uh, CDs of the pastor, and then they have a little store where they sell uh, T-shirts and boxer shorts with the church's name on them, uh, and then there's a little playland area, and then off to the side is a nondescript door that leads into the sanctuary, and then when you go into the sanctuary, it looks like that. It looks like a movie theater. In fact, the picture on your right there of those comfortable, cushy seats individualized, that's not from a movie theater, that's uh, a photo from a online church supply catalog. And all that's missing is a cup holder and a popcorn tray. And so the church becomes overly mainstreamed and becomes a form of entertainment, either a movie theater or a mall. 
Now the problem with both of these expressions, the marginalized Noah's Ark and the mainstream movie theater, is that both are irrelevant to the culture. One is irrelevant to the culture because you don't know the language of the culture, you don't know the world around you, you're just so isolated from the world, you have nothing to say because you don't know the culture around you. The other is irrelevant because you're so much like the world. You're so much like the world that you have nothing to say. You're just saying what the world says just in a, in a, in a, in a, in a cheesier way. So instead of an hour-long television show, you have a 58-minute long Sunday service with appropriate commercial breaks to advertise the events of the church. So what you get is a cheesy version of what the world does much better than we do, but now we do a, a mainstreamed, uh, a movie theater mall version of it in our churches. Both are dysfunctional expressions of our relationship between the church and culture. Now, the question that I want to raise today and that we will tackle tonight as well as uh, 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 throughout the rest of our time is, how do we as a church respond to what's going on in the world around us? Do we bury our head in the sand like the marginalized church did? Or do we embrace it and say, oh, everything's good, everything's perfect, everything's beautiful, and then not have anything to say to the world? Are we going to be a Noah's Ark? Are we going to be a movie theater? Or is there a different way that God is calling to us to confront and to deal and to engage the world that is going on around, the changes in the world that are going on around us? Let me stop here for a moment and for the next five minutes I want to set it up by saying this is some of the changes that are occurring in the world and then in the evening time we're going to follow up with that about how, how we respond to some of these changes. Just a quick thing. Uh, let's go to the uh, two slides ahead here. There are some major changes in the world around us right now. I want to start with the global changes that are going on in the, in the world around us. If you were to ask in the year 1950, what is the typical face of the Christian in the world? Let's say you got all the Christians together in one big room and you said, all right, let's pick out one person that represents these millions of people that are in this room, all the Christians, let's pick out that one face. And if you were to say that that person is a white male, uh, upper middle class, about 50 years old, living in a Midwestern or East Coast suburb, you would be absolutely correct. Uh, the typical Christian from 1950 is that upper middle class, white male, affluent, living in a Midwestern suburb. And when you have this kind of image, this was the standard, this was the typical person that represented Ameri uh, global Christianity. We can scroll through all the images here. And so when we talk about who is the typical Christian in 1950, these images would be appropriate. Now, that's in 1950. That's in 1950. If we were to go now to the year 2009, 2010, and ask the same question, who is the typical Christian in the world right now? then you would have to answer in a very different way. It is no longer the white male in his 50s living in an upper middle class suburb in, uh, outside of Chicago. The typical Christian is a Nigerian peasant woman outside the Lagos, Nigeria. A, a, uh, a Mexican city uh, teenager uh, or a Seoul University student in Seoul, South Korea. Those are more the typical faces of Christianity. And if you want to say, what does Christianity look like in the world right now? It is not an American Christian. It is an African, Asian, and Latin American Christian. Let's look at, some, uh, let's look at uh, a quote here from Philip Jenkins uh, in the book, The Next Christendom, where he said, Over the past five centuries ago or so, the story of Christianity has been bound up with that of Europe and North America, and you could speak about a European Christian civilization. In other words, up until the 20th century, for 500 years, Christianity was tied in with European and North American society so that you can say Christianity is defined by Europe and North America. The next slide. 
But there's been a shift in global Christianity. Over the past century, in the 20th century, the center of gravity in the Christian world has shifted southward to Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and Christianity will enjoy a worldwide boom in the new century, but the majority of these believers will be neither white, nor European, or no, nor Euro-American. So there's a book by uh, 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 Barrett and Johnson called The Atlas of Global Christianity, and it traces the, lo- the center of Christianity. And in the year 1900, the center of Christianity was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So you see that the center of Christianity is really Europe and North America, right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Then you trace how that dot moves in the last 110 years or so. And right now, the center of Christianity is in Africa, Timbuktu. And in fact, if you were to go there, every 10 seconds or so, that center would have to move further south and further east, away from Europe and North America. Let's see some numbers here. In the year 1900, if you got all the Christians in a room, 68% of those Christians would be European, 14% would be North American, meaning that 83% of the Christians in the world would be considered of European or North American, on the European and North American continent, and only 16% would be in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. In the year 2005, that number changed very dramatically. You see the biggest drop in Europe, going from 68% of the Christian population down to 26% of the Christian population. And in fact, the majority of Christians now are non-white. Majority of Christians in the world right now are in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And the minority of Christians are in Europe and North America. And if you project that further out to the year 2050, you will see that 71% of the Christians in the world will be in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and less than 30% of the Christians in the world will be in um, uh, uh, North America and Europe. And in fact, I would argue that that percentage, and I have it in quotation, that 29% being white is actually inaccurate. Because now a growing number of Christians in Europe and North America are non-white. What is the fastest growing church in the UK right now? It's an African church in London. What's the fastest growing church in Sweden right now? It's an African church in Stockholm. What's the fastest growing church in Kiev? Another African church. What's the fastest growing church in Moscow? An African church. What's the fastest growing church in Paris? An African church. So this is the reality in the, in the European continent. The fastest growing churches are not among the Europeans. It's among the African immigrants. And in the same way in the United States, we're seeing, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this tonight, in the same way in the United States, we're seeing a growing population of non-white Christians growing faster than the rate of growth among white Christians in the United States. So this is the reality that we're dealing with. We are dealing with a major shift and a major change in American and global Christianity. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the changes in American Christianity tonight. Uh, Let's turn this off and let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day He visits. So let's set this up. They're in the world right now. We are dealing with this cosmic change, this major change. We are shifting in the last hundred years in just a hundred to a hundred and fifty year time span from a Christianity that was dominated 80 to 85 percent of Christians in the world being white, that by the next 40 years, 80 to 85 Christians in the world will be non-white. And this is happening in only a 150 year time period. It is reversing 
Literally hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of years of church history is, re- is being reversed within our lifetime. This is the reality of both global and American Christianity. I'll talk a little bit more about the American Christianity uh, in this evening session. Now, what we can do is we can bury our head in the sand and say, this has nothing to do with us here in Quincy, Massachusetts. Or we can say, God is doing something amazing. And it is our task to engage this changing culture and world. Because in the 20th century, there was a dysfunctional relationship between the church and the culture. Dysfunctional in one, uh, one particular way. Well, a number of ways, but I want to highlight one particular way. When the culture changed, not just in terms of uh, uh, modernity and in terms of modernism versus fundamentalism, one of the things that changed was that there was a great migration of African Americans from the Mississippi Delta to the northern cities. Many in the, many in the Midwest, but also on the East Coast. This great migration meant that cities began to change in very significant ways. At the same time, there was an influx of non-Western European, meaning Southern and Eastern European, immigration into the major cities on the East Coast. So in the early part of the 20th century, major changes were afoot in American culture and society. The cities were no longer uh, dominated by white and European Americans. It was dominated by non-whites. And it was seeing an increase of African Americans, Eastern Europeans, even Asian, and the growing number of, uh, of the Chinese immigrants coming in because of the railroads. So the cities were beginning to change. And it was around this time that the churches began to talk about an evil culture and an evil city and an evil world and the need to disengage. And what that led to was what we call white flight. Whites leaving the city in droves, leaving the city and abandoning major church buildings in the cities as well and rushing out into the suburban communities to move to safer neighborhoods, to get away from the influx of immigrants and African Americans coming into the city. And so many of these churches that had once been major centers of revival in urban centers were now moved out and became eventually to become megachurches in the wealthy, affluent suburban neighborhoods. And it's not just the world that responded this way with white flight, it was also the churches that responded with white flight. Now my question is, how are we going to engage the world and engage culture in such a way in the midst of these dramatic changes that are occurring? A Christianity that is changing, a world that is changing, a nation that is changing. Are we as a Christian community going to bury our head in the sand and ignore it? Or are we going to engage it in a dysfunctional way? Or are we going to truly be the people of God that are both aliens aliens and strangers? And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more today because I'm running, I've run out of time. But we're going to pick up on this theme of aliens and strangers tonight, of how do we be both aliens and strangers, and how do we respond to the world that is changing around us. Let me close this in prayer. God, I thank you that nothing gets by you. Nothing is out of your control. Nothing is out of your jurisdiction. And I thank you that you are a sovereign Lord who is able to bring about wonderful things in this world. We also know that the world has fallen and that we face many challenges. God, we as the church ask you to show us the way that we might seek your kingdom first, but that your kingdom might be also be, uh, be evident in the world around us. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us a way that we as the church can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into a fallen world, but do it in a way that honors you and also serves the people that we are, uh, we are we're seeking to save. Lord, we pray 
for ways and a challenge to bring the gospel into this world that is changing around us. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Hopefully see you tonight at 7 o'clock. Pastors, the calf opens at 11.30. So.